1: Minka Makalani is the featured author on this edition of New Books in African-American Studies, the interview series where writers of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sean Young, and the book we'll be discussing today is In the Cause of Freedom, Radical Black Internationalism from Harlem to London, 1917 to 1939, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2011. This intellectual history is about two Black radical organizations at the turn of the 20th century and their efforts to organize a global movement that sought to end race and class oppression. I enjoyed my conversation about this book, In the Cause of Freedom, with its author, Minka Makalani, and I'm sure you will too. Please, listen in.
2: Hello, Minka.
1: Hi, how are you doing, Sean?
2: Very well, thanks for asking. Today we're speaking to Minka Makalani. He is an assistant professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of a provocative new intellectual history entitled In the Cause of Freedom, Radical Black Internationalism from Harlem to London, 1917 to 1939. In this book, Minka Makalani charts how early 20th century black radicals organized an international or global movement that sought to end both race and class oppression. We're happy to have Minka on the show today. Minka, will you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, Yes, and uh, thank you again for for inviting me on and and, uh, discussing the book. Um so a little bit about myself. I am originally from uh Kansas City, Missouri. Uh born and raised on and um kind of in the center of the city what we would call south um but compared to other major cities it wouldn't really register as a as a major shift geographically. Uh and a working class black neighborhood um and you know just had kind of a Southern migrant family was very vibrant and retrospect, somewhat um, uh, prescribed life in terms of the amount of money and things that we had to do, but nonetheless a very rich kind of cultural life and, and social life. And um, after graduating, I initially went to school at Central State in Ohio to, um, to play football. And after I guess the the first week when we had like one week we were freshmen and the second week when the veterans came, um, after about three days I realized that not only was my NFL career not probably going to take off, but my college career probably wasn't going to do that well um, in terms of talent level. So I got really serious about um, school and um, initially tried to transfer to Morehouse, um, got accepted, but ended up going to the University of Missouri in Columbia, which was closer to home, and um, had a really great time there, became involved in uh, student activism uh, organizations uh, and for a very small black student population, I think maybe about three or 400 um, while I was there. We had a very vibrant kind of cultural and intellectual community where people were reading a lot. Um, the professors were really generous with their time. And, and talking with us and kind of suffering our um, assessing questions and our immature mistakes in terms of organizing and doing different things and then um, at that point I kind of gotten very interested in um, both creative writing, writing poetry, um, plays, and um, actually developed pretty well as a poet but also had a strong interest in black studies um, particularly in history, um, and that's where I met the people who kind of got me really into um, thinking about history and black studies. This is uh, Sundiata Chajua, um, who's now at the University of Illinois, and uh, Dave Rodiger, who uh, is also at the University of Illinois and has wrote a lot of work on um, on uh, whiteness mm-hmm. and, and race, and other people at the University of Illinois, Gene Allman, who's an African historian, um, Susan Porter Benson, who's a labor historian who passed away, um, you know, these were people who kind of took it upon themselves to really make sure that we took seriously what we were doing. And so when I was kind of slacking off, Susan Porter Benson was the one who wrote me this long handwritten letter, you know, back in like '89 or '90, whenever this was, kind of admonishing me to take my work more seriously. And um, and so that was a kind of cultural environment, and I had uh participated in a number of things uh, uh, in terms of creative writing, but when it came down to um, going to graduate school, I was kind of torn between going into creative writing and having my poetry judged by um, people who I felt generally didn't have a basic understanding of kind of black poetry and black cultural and social experiences and That kind of tilted me more toward doing – well, that kind of made the decision for me in that I applied to several um, creative writing and literature programs and got accepted into, I think, three, and then I applied to one history program, and that was to um, get a master's with uh, Sundiata Tadjua, and this was at Southern Illinois in Edwardsville, Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, and then from there, um, kind of just went full heartedly into um, history as a graduate student, and then ultimately went to um, the University of Illinois and to get my PhD. And while I, when I got there, it was a very kind of um, sparse offering for someone wanting to do African American history. Um, I worked with Juliet Walker, who's a Black business historian. And after my first year, there was no one else to do African American history with. And I didn't really have a good understanding about taking classes in other departments and whatnot. But by the time I became ABD, um, for doing African American history, it became a very vibrant field um, for doing more theoretically oriented work and for thinking about kind of uh, international or doing international transnational history, as it were, Um, And for me, doing diaspora became a place that I actually began to develop and think about these things more concertedly. And toward the end of my graduate career is where I began to think about um, doing a book and doing work that really dealt with the diaspora, the African diaspora in a concerted way, and not just doing a book that would be seen as African American history. And then from there, um, I got a job at Rutgers University and was there from, uh, I think, 2004 until this past January when I came to join the um, African Diaspora Department,
2: uh, African and African Diaspora Studies Department here at uh, the University of Texas. Nice. Thank you for that. Before we get started on the formal interview, I have two questions I want to ask you as an aside. Uh Uh, When were you at SIUE?
0: Oh, I was um, I was in the history department um, in the masters program. This was I think ninety six um, ninety. I think ninety six and ninety seven is when I
2: was in the masters program there. Uh, okay, um, I, I I just missed you because I graduated from SIUE as an undergrad. Oh, you did. <laughs> oh wow.
0: Okay, okay. When when did you graduate?
2: I graduated in ninety five.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, I came, I guess, a year after you graduated, so,
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, uh, small it world. It's <laughs> a small world. I don't often hear people talk about SIUE.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, graduated. I lived in St. Louis on, um, uh, at Del Mar to Bolivar, and took the metro to East St. Louis, and then the, the bus out, and then um, for a year, I lived in one of those apartment dorms for graduate students, right, right on right, campus, right. so, yeah,
2: yeah. that. And I hear that there's an interesting story behind your name. Would you mind telling us what it is?
0: Yeah, well um Mika Makalani was not my birth name and I don't normally give it out, so I'm not here. Um, <laughs> but I um you know I was a child of the eighties and so by the time I got to college, and this is you know, school days had just come out, Public Enemy was really big, Keras won. So you kind of gotten a sort of um a a, a sense of kind of political and cultural consciousness. But when I got to um, such a state university, and this is a small black college, you know, it, its its kind of claim was that um, it was connected to Wilberforce originally, or it was also to Wilberforce, and Wilberforce was the first black college established by black people. I think it's the African Methodist Episcopal Church or something like that. Um, and it was a very vibrant place. People talked about. Uh, politics on a daily basis, and this is where I first read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and so I kind of had this awakening and decided that I was going to take an African name, and so I took one at 19. This is like a year and a half later, and um, but I'd become really interested in uh, Ghana and Kwame Nkrumah being the 1st sub up-Saharan African country to gain its independence, as well as the Mao Mau, the first, as I understood it in my 19-year-old head, the first revolutionary movement to really try and just kill off the British imperialists. (laughs) So I took Minka from Ghana and Makalani from Kenya to Mm -hmm. kind of capture these two uh, movements and not realizing much later that the Ma mile actually killed more Kenyans <laughs> than they did uh British, but that was kind of the moment and the um the the brashness I guess of, of uh of the late nine of the late eighties, early nineties, uh when this happened and um you know, sometimes I I have regrets because apparently Makalani is also a uh volcano in Hawaii and mm-hmm people just, just assume that I'm Hawaiian. And so once, shortly after 9-11, a woman said something to me at the airport in in Hawaiian language. I had no idea what she was talking about. And she thought that I was trying to pass off a fake name. So I had to explain everything to Homeland Security. That I was not a terrorist trying to bomb a plane or something like that.
2: <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Now, you've already sort of gotten us... Um, uh, ahead by talking about your intellectual history, and you trace some mm-hmm. of that in the um, opening pages, uh, especially in the opening acknowledgments of this book, but can you tell right. us more uh, substantially how you came to write this particular book? Right.
0: Um, well, there, yeah, you uh, and I talk about kind of coming, the book kind of centers our uh, hinges, I mean, this book is more appropriate, um, by two... Mm-hmm. Um, organizations. And it, begin, it begins with the African Brotherhood, which is a small group of um Caribbean radicals in Harlem. And they had posts throughout the United States and even in the Caribbean. Um, and it's the, the it the end of it is the International African Service Bureau, which is this organization largely of uh Caribbean but also African activists in London, uh the most prominent being um George Padmore uh, C.L.R. James, uh, both of them from Trinidad, and then Amy Ashwood Garvey, Marcus Garvey's first wife, and a number of other figures. Um, and so the African Brotherhood I came across, and, and C.L.R. James as well, but came across both of them as undergraduates at the University of Missouri. Um, and the African Brotherhood became kind of a um, a quest of a sort. And that I wanted to know more about this organization, which I had first heard described as the left wing of the Garvey movement and the Black cadre of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shortly discovered that was not the case. But what I did find is that they were actually a very vibrant and important kind of political organization um, in Harlem in the nineteen late 19 teens and in the early 1920s. I mean, they had a shelf life of about five years, uh, depending on how you want to measure it, from mm-hmm. roughly 1919 to 24, 25. Um, but the kinds of things that they were able to do, you have to really dig around and do a lot of innovative kind of uh, research to get at it. And so it began with looking at the facsimile of the Crusader magazine, which was the Brother Brotherhood's publicity organ, and then looking through kind of federal surveillance records of different members, uh, different accounts from other folks who were connected to or- you know, had some association with the organization, um, and so that took quite a while um, to kind of get a full sense of who they were, who their members were. Um, so some of the most important were um, Cyril Briggs, who is somewhat well known, more so in activist circles, and and um, uh, he's a person who established the Crusader magazine. Um, an interesting person in himself, he comes from Saint Kitts, never Saint Kitts. Um, in the Caribbean, and his mother is um, colored in the Caribbean, and his father is a white man who works on the plantation, not on a, on a uh, plantation in in uh, nevis um, so he comes out basically looking white and um, for whatever the reasons and i and I have some speculation as to why um, but he doesn't kind of embrace a white identity and he doesn't have to kind of in the Caribbean his family doesn't have to because they have a they can occupy a kind of middle space between blacks and whites and it's more complex racial structure but when he comes to the US in part because his Caribbean accent would, would certainly get him away and there's a, a decently sized Caribbean population in um, harm at the time um, but he assumes a black identity, he he embraces blackness in a in a very unique kind of way. And what's interesting about the um the Crusader magazine, and this is in part, I think, Briggs responding to his own racial makeup and his own animosity about how race plays out in the Caribbean. Um, this is one of the few magazines that doesn't in the nineteen teens and twenties, that doesn't use um, advertisements from uh... anything that has to do with skin lightness. It it has straightening combs, it it publicizes black beauty culturalist um, products and services but it doesn't do anything that suggests or hints at lightning one's complexion Mm or getting away from kind of black racial features or obvious racial features and and he's very explicit about the problems and others in the organization. very explicit about the problems that can come from color and a political Mm -hmm. struggle and so all of these things became pretty um, intriguing and interesting to me, and it's also at the same time that I uh, come up, come into contact with um, CLR James. This was shortly after he had died. Um, I believe it was in '89. The um, David Roediger was an advisor for a radical student history organization on campus and an organization a black. Uh, student organization that I was a part of. They we talked about putting on a um, uh, tribute to, to him, I guess. And I, I had no idea who he was. And we watched this uh, documentary about CLR James, and I was just, you know, taken away. Uh, he's, you know, very charismatic figure, extremely intelligent. Um, you know, reputed for uh, going to give a lecture. And this is stuff I found out since. Uh, but part of it I heard at the time, he would, you know, arrive at a lecture and say, you know, what do you want me to talk about? And they would say, Well, what did you come to talk about? And he's like, well, What do you want me to talk about? He has an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge. Um, kind of photographic memory. So he just had amazing recall and they would say, We'll talk about X and he would say, How long? And they'd say, Okay, what, well, thirty minutes. And so he'd say, Okay, we're we're starting at seven fifteen. And we're going to end at 7.45 and put his watch down and talk for 30 minutes exactly. Um, And, um, you know, that kind of intellect and that kind of uh, ability to have a command of knowledge and to also be politically engaged is something that really appealed to me. So I began to read what I could of James and not really necessarily understanding it in a detailed kind of way, but once I got to graduate school, I began to explore more. I began to think about um, the Caribbean more. You know, I was someone who was trained in African-American history, a rather straightforward African-American history. I wasn't trained to do diaspora. Um, there were no courses that were offered in the Caribbean, uh, but I realized at a certain point, um, after being asked how I was going to address uh, looking at Caribbean figures, um, that I had to... T- to treat the Caribbean more earnestly. And mm-hmm. then that kind of spawned a process where I began to think about bringing in James, bringing in Pat Moore, and the things that are going on in London in the 1930s, and the conversation with what's going on in the 1910s and 1920s in Harlem, because there are connections. They aren't um, bold. They aren't very... Um, immediately recognizable, but once you begin to look at the history in a different kind of way, and this is kind of what I try and chart out and lay out in the introduction, we begin to ask certain kinds of questions, and you begin to look at the sources from a certain angle uh, that you begin to recognize, and you can begin to chart out these connections that do exist,
2: and then that's how I got to in the cause of freedom. Very interesting. Now I want to ask uh some pointed definitional uh type questions, at least two. Mm-hmm. Uh one of them is can you tell us about the dates, bookending nineteen seventeen to nineteen thirty nine, and also uh particularly why from Harlem to London? Okay.
0: Well, the the dates nineteen seventeen, nineteen thirty nine. Um, you know, so it's kind of a uh, a, a practice of historians to offer periodization and to try and carve up time into some manageable chunk, and then um, give a reason for why these dates are are critically important to understanding a period. So you have people talk about now, like the civil rights movement, and originally it was. From 54 to 65. Um, now it's being talked about as a long civil rights movement, people pushing it back to the 1930s mm-hmm. and into the 1970s. Um, there's not a lot that's been done in the same kind of way for periodizing the New Negro movement, what we normally talk about as the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and so part of thinking about 1917 to 1919 was to um, kind of invoke and raise up a discussion about how might we periodiz- periodize this earlier period of activity. What we normally think about as the Harlem Renaissance, but if we take the Harlem Renaissance as kind of um, the cultural production, the cultural movement that is concurrent with the political and social aspects of black life in the U.S. from... The 19 teens, 20s, into the 30s. Um, how do we then look at that period a bit differently? And then how might we see relationships between other places? And so um, it's in part trying to do that. But the real reason for those exact dates, because I would say if we think about a periodizing like the Negro movement, I would move it back to like maybe 1905, mm-hmm. and then ended at like 1940 41 with the March on Washington movement. Um, but 1917 is really when I see the political formations in harlem and the intellectual discussions and the relationships that are developing amongst these larger caribbean radicals um... giving birth to what became the african brotherhood it's in nineteen seventeen when they um... begin to hold these intellectual forums, initially called the people's educational forum um, these are larger people who are out of um... the socialist party who are all but a couple of caribbean uh, caribbean immigrants into harlem and then nineteen thirty nine um Again, it's 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 not necessarily a, a self-evident date. Really, that's when CLR James leaves London to come to the United States, and what was initially supposed to be a um, a six-month tour for the Socialist Party ends up being fifteen years. Um, the, the International African Service Bureau remains active, and then it becomes later um, the Pan African Federation. I think it's called. And that is the organization, our, an outgrowth of the International African Service Bureau, that convenes the Fifth Pan African Congress in Manchester, England. Um, which is the Pan African Congress, that kind of really shifts the focus from kind of Africans in the diaspora, black people in the diaspora, to um, Africans themselves and the kinds of. Uh, liberation was they want to lead. so 39 though is a stopping point because that's when James leaves London and comes on this surgeon in the US and it was also kind of forecasting um, with ending with James coming to London it was forecasting a subsequent work that I'm now undertaking that I can talk about later if you want um, so those were the reasons for the two dates in a in a long-winded kind of way and then Harlem to London, um, this is really to try and chart how we might think about connections between two different places that um, in certain ways are seen as in conversation or in certain ways are seen as connected to one another, but we don't necessarily see it consistently done for this time period. I mean, you have people who are going back and forth, and you have an obvious awareness of their travels, but we don't see them as tied in the same kind of institutional and organizational and intellectual kinds of ways as what I'm suggesting. Um, I think the closest that comes to something like this uh, before um, in the cause of freedom was Brent Edwards's book, uh, *The Practice of Diaspora*, which looks kind of at Harlem and Paris, and then um, interaction between. African American some Afro-Caribbean, Anglophone Caribbean, and then Francophone um, Africans and Caribbeans in the Paris Metropole. Um, And so what I'm trying to do with talk about From home to London is see how this small group of Caribbean radicals who are concerned Mm -hmm. with a range of issues, but they have to confront them in the context of um, the structures of race and racial oppression Mm -hmm. in the U.S., how they begin to build a movement, why they see, for example, in this instance, uh, organized communism and the Communist international as viable for Pan-African liberation, the problems they encounter, but how, even with them struggling with that, and there are these fits and starts, they're frustrated at different points, how that ultimately creates the space for someone like um, George Padmore, who comes to the U.S. as Malcolm Nurse, first at Fisk and then at Howard. Uh, to come into the Communist Party in New York, interact with some of those members from the african Brotherhood, but ultimately going to become kind of the most well-known and most revered black communist in the world for a few years, but then leave um, kind of disgruntled and disillusioned with the Communist International and then find this vibrant, uh, radical community in London, James his childhood friend, who he meets at a lecture in 32 or 33, I believe. Um, and then they began to go from there to build this uh, vibrant anti-colonial movement, which becomes a sort of, uh, not a proving ground, but it becomes a, a basis for a number of those major figures for African liberation movements as well as for the independence movements and uh, people who are involved in West Indies Federation uh, together, Mary Shaw was a part of uh, this. Arthur Lewis, who became this, uh, what he wasn't a, he wasn't knighted. He was just Arthur Lewis, a major economist who was a Nobel Prize winner, um, is involved with it. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah comes through this network. Namdi Asikheywa is involved before he returns to Nigeria. Um, So it becomes this uh, pulling Harlem and London together. We begin to see how efforts around a particular local kind of context and a particular national context, even though these Caribbeans are bringing the Caribbean with them, they're bringing race in the Caribbean, they're bringing colonialism and coloniality more generally to their understanding of Harlem and the U.S. and racism there, how that motivates them to then engage in this project that ultimately creates space, it isn't singularly or solely responsible for what occurs in London and in the International African Service Bureau, but it does create a context for George Padmore to get the standing that he does, to build the kind of network that he builds while he's in the Communist International, and then that translates into what we have occurring in London. And I don't think we can disconnect, discount that. Right? I don't think we can discount what happens from. Uh, Caribbean independence, African liberation movements, uh, and particularly George Padmore goes to become an advisor to Nkrumah and at the Ghana its independence in 57.
2: Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about the communist international um, and communism, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the um, attractiveness of black radicals to the communist international and to communism, but also uh, to talk about the tensions between the black radicals and the communist international, particularly as it pertains to ideas and definitions of race and class, and the mm-hmm. um, the importance that those should play um, in any struggle
0: right well, one of the things I was really concerned to do. With this was to get away from what i uh what I'd seen as', as rather easy explanations for why blacks black radicals would join the communist party. I mean you had the possibly the most um uh simplistic and and unimaginative explanation was that the communists had the right answer they had the right analysis they understood that class exploitation was the basis of racial oppression, and this is what drew the smartest of black people. This is kind of an old left um, explanation. And then you have um, others who would just argue that the Communist International appealed to the anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist bent of those members from the African Brotherhood. And you, know, you can say the same thing about um, those black radicals in London or, or in Paris or elsewhere. Um, who joined the Communist International from its different kind of international locations. And for me, the problem with that was that it didn't really attend to what motivated those earliest black communists to join a Communist Party. And a number of them, in particular with the african Brotherhood, had been socialists. So they had been in the Socialist Party of America. They had been involved in struggles around getting the organized white left in the U.S., to deal with race, to deal with imperialism in a concerted, genuine way that didn't kind of reduce race to epiphenomena, that didn't just say, well, when you have a proletarian revolution, race race issues will be solved because all black people are workers and so, you know, one necessarily resolves the other. And so when you had the communist parties emerging in the US in nineteen nineteen, They were the very people who were coming from um, the Socialist Party in the U.S. And so many of these black radicals understood who they were. They still had their frustrations and doubts about white radicals. Um, And so the Communist International became kind of an appeal. But even then, it wasn't that they saw the Communist International as this panacea, this bastion that would resolve all their issues. They also recognized limitations. And problems with how um, uh, Bolshevik luminaries were talking about national oppression. Uh, in particular, um, they were drawn to Lenin and his support for self determination for oppressed nations. But it was really Asian radicals who ended up being key to opening up um, the Communist International for black radicals. And it's not until after you have. Uh, M. N. Roy, he's an Indian radical. Um, he's, he's coming out of India. He is involved in this uh, conspiracy to get ammunition from Germany during World War One. but ultimately fails. He goes into exile. Um, he sojourns through, through the U.S. for a brief period and ends up in Mexico, attends a commentary in Congress, and has this debate with Lenin around national oppression. And what he basically says is that not in so many words, but he says that, listen, this idea of um, backward African and Asian countries um, that need to be brought up to speed to have a proletarian revolution is extremely problematic. These are societies divided by class, and we have to approach them as complex, fully developed societies. And then that ultimately transforms the rhetoric and discourse within the Communist International. Around Asian and African uh, national liberation movements, particularly around Asian liberation movements. Um, and then it's at that point that you see a kind of shift in how black radicals are talking about the common turn. It's after these resolutions that get passed that M.N. Roy is very influential in shaping in 1920. So this is when Claude McKay comes back from London after this has gone on. He's read it in the papers that he's working for in London. Um, They read them in communist papers in the U.S. And that is when they go in. But almost immediately, they encounter problems around race. Some of the same problems that they encountered Mm -hmm. while they were in the Socialist Party. The difference is that they felt that Communist International offered a a vehicle to address their grievances. And it, it, it didn't actually do what they thought it would do it didn't um, give them other things that they hoped and they saw it as a way to make these connections to black radicals in the Caribbean and Africa and throughout the world, uh, other kinds of movements that they weren't themselves able to create. And none of this happened. And so they're very disgruntled. You get get a sense that many of them are prepared to leave. And then in 1927, they have this international uh, Congress against imperialism in, in Brussels, Belgium, and this is the first time where a uh, black communist from the United States, and this is a guy by the name of Richard Moore, who's from Barbados and comes to the U.S. and as, as a late teen uh, becomes a socialist and then ultimately a communist. He goes, participates in this Congress. He's talking with people like Lamine Senghor from Senegal, who's involved in this Communist Party in France, um, establishes a black radical organization. In Paris, called the Committee for the Defense of the Black Race, um, meets people from throughout the francophone world, and they begin to draft these declarations about um, what was commonly called then the Negro Question. Um, that really did capture the international flavor and their radical flavor, where rather than talk about um, the struggle against imperialism simply as a struggle against capitalism taking on global proportions, they, they explicitly say the struggle against imperialism is an incessant struggle against white supremacy, mm-hmm. along with all this other stuff. And so they begin to really reshape um, the discourse around uh, colonialism. But then, you know, ultimately, those problems continue with race, with the Communist international is never able to kind of be the bully pulpit to get its local parties to address race, to address uh, the race of members, to address um, colonial organizing in, in the colonies, um, and ultimately um, George Padmore kind of exemplifies the frustration of a lot of people where he is working in Hamburg, Germany in what is known as the international uh, was it the International Committee of Trade uh International Trade Union Committee of Negro Workers. And this is an organization that has a network throughout um Europe to the east coast of west coast of Africa, Caribbean. Um and ultimately he feels that, you know, he's being told to tone down his criticism of British and French imperialism um because the Soviet Union is trying to reach an appeasement with Britain with France and it's build up to war with Nazi Germany and his response is to leave and a, a number of people leave after um, this period um, and that kind of captures um, really the the possibility that people saw in the Commerce international as well as the, the severe limitations um, and it's when they come out of that that they're able to kind of further extend a lot of the things that they had begun to do when it comes to national, but by the 1930s, don't you don't kind of you don't see the same resonance. Doesn't discount what the Communist Party does in local areas and black communities in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Even um, some very vibrant, important stuff. But for these radicals, in particular, the con- the CP became um, uh, kind of a uh, an inhibiting. Force on what they want to do in terms of building an international movement. And so they kind of move outside of that in a number of different ways. And so what I do is follow Padmore to look at one particular response to leaving the Communist International, and leaving organized communism to building an independent movement.
2: Nice. Now I want to ask you a question about um, Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance in particular. Um, mm-hmm. You do uh, treat some of the figures that were um, – most commonly familiar with W.B. Du Bois, um, Marcus Garvey, but the one that you um, uh, front is Claude McKay, uh, the Jamaican-born poet um, Mm -hmm. and international traveler. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about um, McKay and what you think um, your book does for enlarging our common understanding of what the Harlem Renaissance is uh, and was
1: about.
0: Right. Well, Claude McKay is um, an interesting, very interesting figure, and there's a lot of work that's beginning to come out on McKay that looks at um, more uh, closely at his his life in Jamaica, Um, his early uh, efforts or early activities in the United States, Um, as well as uh, looking at questions of sexuality and um, challenging gender norms within organized communism. Um, And I forget the person's name, but it's a book, I think, is called uh, Codename Sasha, which really looks at um, how sexuality um, came into McKay's politics and work. Mm. Um, And what I'm concerned with in... uh, and the part that deals with McKay is how he kind of represents this ability to both um, draw on and contribute to a discourse and a politics that's emerging within the United States, but he never sees himself as limited to that. And so he goes to London um, after a brief period in the United States, and he kind of falls in with uh, a group of radicals tied to um, uh, some of the names I'm forgetting, Sylvia uh, Pankhurst, tied to her organization, and he works for her paper called The Worker's Dreadnought. Um, but he ultimately also um, joins in and and associates with a number of international workers, maritime laborers, uh, goes to a socialist club where he's hearing a number of speakers. And he's drawing on kind of left politics in London. And this is really where he begins to see, as opposed to just seeing it within the context of the United States, he begins to see in London both the possibility of organized communism as a vehicle to um, kind of pan-African liberation, if you will, even though he doesn't use those terms, um, as well as the limitations. And there's really, um, you know, he writes a letter to um, uh, Marcus Garvey saying that if we can make connections with these people and kind of get them to see what's going on in the colonies, uh, I think mean, he's talking about Jamaica in particular, that we can, or the British West Indies more generally, we can we can then begin to make some real progress and we can have this international voice Addressing our concerns, and he's talking about the British left in a, in a more general kind of way, but then you have um, after the armistice of uh, World War One, and the French are occupying the German Rhine, and kind of to you know rub rub the defeat in the nose of the Germans, they station African troops on the Rhine, and this leads to um, this international uproar about the Black Scourge on the Rhine, where basically these African uh, soldiers who are uncivilized know themselves around um, around white women, they're going to start raping white, white German women, and this is going to really um, cause a serious threat to the German nation. And it isn't just that you have like, liberals or um, mainstream politicians complaining about the station of African troops. You actually have radicals in London making the same kinds of complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people who were actually, this one guy, E.B. Morel, who was a fierce critic of Belgian atrocities in the Congo, talking about um, the the potential problem to, the potential threat to German workers and the working class more generally by having African troops there. And so McKay responds by saying, you know, um, we're just, you're basically playing on these, irrational fears of black sexuality and, you know, what we might say in a later period as, you know, the the big black black buck who's going to threaten white womanhood Mm -hmm. and thus threaten the white nation. And so you get him addressing some of the same kind of concerns, but in London and coming back to the U.S. and bringing a different perspective to those discussions that are going on in the U.S. that um, I think really shows How what is going on in the Harlem Renaissance, the New Negro Movement, does actually translate in a way in different places. Not that there's a one-to-one translation. Not that we can talk about what's going on in London, what's going on in Paris, what's going on in Hamburg, or um, other places in the European metropole in the same way, or even in in the Caribbean in the same way as. we would in Harlem or the U.S. more generally, but it does show, I think, the the kind of global nature of both how race was structured, how racial discourses function, but then also how black people were responding to that. And I think what's interesting about McKay is that rather than kind of turn to a politics of respectability, which is, is rather current, and... This period, and then in the Harlem Renaissance and the Negro Movement, and try and talk about the African soldiers as having valor, as having fought uh, bravely on the field, and deserving the respect and honor of other soldiers. He really does not address that. And he goes straight for the question of this um, what he calls a psychology around uh, uh, a psychological um, problem around sex and black sex and black men. And their bodies, and so you get this really interesting way that he responds to um, black sexuality in this period that isn't addressed that 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 you don't necessarily find as forcefully in the Harlem Renaissance. But he brings that back, and this kind of you know, as you as you know, he kind of has um, he circulates in those circles in the Harlem Renaissance, and Harlem in particular. With a number of people who are dealing with questions of their own sexuality, dealing with questions of respectability, and the problems and constraints that they feel, and for McKay, it ultimately leads him to leave um, Harlem in the U.S. for good. And um, uh, you have others kind of addressing it in different kinds of ways. But I think that's really one of the interesting things that comes out about McKay, and that's also the basis of his radical politics. And I don't necessarily tease it out as fully as I might have liked to, but I think it is one of those interesting aspects of his kind of political biography and of the history of this period.
2: Hmm. Now it's time for us to ask you if you will read to us from the book to give us a, a flavor of what the prose is like.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, I'll do, um, two sections, uh, not, not, very long, but one will, is coming from the discussion of the part that focuses on Harlem and another, uh, captures kind of what I'm trying to get at uh, about what's going on in London. Um, so the first one's from the first chapter, uh, called Straight Socialism or Negrology. And this is basically talking about the moment when, um, black radicals kind of make, um, certain from the white left, and they begin to develop their own intellectual and political institutions and address issues in a certain kind of way. And this is the section called the People's Educational form in the Black Left. Many of the black radicals whom Hubert Harrison had recruited into the Socialist Party of America remained socialist after his resignation, though they continued to find the party disinclined to support work regarding race. While the Color Socialist Club in 1912, party leaders closed closed it within two months, and another six years passed before the Socialist Party opened the largely black 21st Assembly District in Harlem. And while most black socialists largely agreed with the SDA that class exploitation lay at the heart of racial oppression, they took exception to the claim that it was more important for black people to, quote, join revolutionary organizations of the general proletariat than the special organizations of their race. Frustrated with choosing between straism or necrology, Richard Moore, Otto Heeswald, Grace Campbell, W. A. Domingo, and Frank Crossway began meeting on Sunday mornings to discuss contemporary issues and read classic Marxist works, including the Communist Manifesto and Frederick Engels' Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. In the summer of na- 1917, under Grace Campbell's and Louise Jackson's leadership, Black Radicals in the Socialist Party launched the People's Educational Forum. The forum augmented the study group by sponsoring public lectures and debates for the wider Harlem public. Campbell, a black social worker and secretary of the 21st Assembly District, secured guest speakers, among them W.E.B. Du Bois and the anthropologist Franz Boas, various nationalist, nationalist political activists, labor organizers, and other socialists. Lecturers discuss political concerns as how to meet and defeat the KKK, as well as more theoretical questions, for example, Boaz's lecture on supposed racial inferiority. The forum encouraged participants to engage speakers and their ideas rather than merely listen. Quote, unlike other organizations of Negroes in Harlem declared a 1920 advertisement in W.A. Domingo's Emancipator newspaper, the proceedings of the People's Educational Forum are absolutely democratic. The forum was an intellectual battleground whose very structure challenged the elitism of Harlem's black leadership class and the autocratic structure of many black organizations. Such open exchanges, however, could aggravate guests. In October 1920, when W.E.B. Du Bois lectured on the war and the darker world and suggested that black workers should take a middle ground between capital and labor, forum participants attacked what they called his suicidal program possibly embarrassed and certainly infuriated, and Perious Du Bois admonished the audience, quote, I didn't come here to engage in this sort of exchange. I thought you wanted to learn something, but you know everything, and Du Bois never returned. The People's Educational Forum provided black radicals a venue in which to engage racial class, allowing them to cultivate a leadership cadre, and as Richard Moore later recalled, see, quote, socialist theory as a method of social analysis of the Afro-American situation, and the oppressed colonial peoples in Africa, the Caribbean, and elsewhere. And that is kind of what I would see as the beginning of this kind of independent black radical organizing in Harlem in 1917 as a educational form. That's where they kind of set up what becomes the Harlem Brotherhood and then what informs their uh, activities in um, 1920s. And the second section I want to read which is a bit shorter. Um, this is looking at um, this is when CLR James is in London. He's met George Padmore, um, and he's beginning to and in- become involved in black political circles in London. And part of it, one of the things that I should mention about the book in general, one of the the guiding themes is um, how did um, how did these Caribbean radicals. How did their experience with race in the Caribbean and then confronting different kind of racial structures and ways of being black in both the U.S. and London inform their radical politics? How did that cultivate their view of um, racial oppression, class oppression, uh, anti-colonial struggle? And C.L. James is an interesting character because he comes to London in 32 really convinced of uh, the Caribbean of, of Caribbeans as being an advanced people, unlike Africans who are uh, somewhat backward and still rooted in, in tribal differences, and they're not modern enough to lead the world. And by the time he writes Black Jacobins, he definitely doesn't have that view. And so this section kind of gets at the context in which he um, breaks from that view, and it's talking about him uh, the kind of the debates that are going on in uh, in London. Uh, C.L.R. James was drawn into the into the growing discourse on race and empire among London's black population. A 1936 West African Student Union debate took up the question of what advantages might come from quote, greater cooperation between Africans and West Indians. The discussion focused specifically on what many Africans experienced as Caribbean hubris. In a lively debate, Africans critis- criticized Caribbeans for imitating whites and for quote their ignorance of the cultures of their forefathers, and their blindness to the advantages of mutual understanding. The debate was held as a sign of change. Participants agreed that Caribbeans needed to discard, quote, the anti-African propaganda with which their educational system is saturated and reestablish contact with the civilization in which they have their roots. James understood the points made that night. James was also drawn into the orbit of Amy Ashford Garvey, who had settled in London in 1930 with her companion Sam Manning, took up residence at 62 New Oxford Road and opened the Florence Mills Social Parlor and the International Afro restaurant below her flat. The Florence Mills Social Parlor provided a political and social venue where black people could find familiar food, see familiar faces, and relax away from the gaze of white Londoners. The need for such places cannot be underestimated, for the Metropole exacted quite a toll on Caribbean and African immigrants separated from fa- from friends, family, and familiar settings, and always made to feel the outsider. It was a natu- it was natural for political discussions to thrive at the Florence Mills, and other West Indian establish- uh, and other West End establishments like the Caribbean Club. Thus, when news came of Mussolini's activities in the African Horn, and this is on a, on the eve of Mussolini invading Ethiopia in 35. It was at Ashwood's restaurant, and where her help that James established the International African Friends of Ethiopia in July of 1935. It's hard to overstate this organization's importance for understanding James's political consciousness. Though he came to London concerned with West Indian self-government, he was now, quote, meeting a lot of black people and African people in London. And what must James have thought when at Ashwood's restaurant he met Africans such as Nigeria's Adetokumbo Ademola, who had studied law at Cambridge, or Joseph B. Danquah, the West African Student Union's first president, who studied philosophy and law, had Ashwood challenged his considerable hubris. London was James' uniquely diasporic moment. His interactions with African students, intellectuals, and activists informed his political activities, as is evident in the name he gave his first organization, the International African Friends of Ethiopia. Gradually, James later recalled of his time in London, I began to gain in England a conception of black people, which I didn't possess when I left the Caribbean, and those kind of capture the two registers that the that the book is trying to reach in the caribbean i mean in in uh
2: the u s and london very nice, and what you' um reading underscores for me is just how um brilliantly some historians can take facts. Figures and um, a wealth of archival research and information, and weave those into um, intriguing and uh, engaging narratives and stories. So, thank you for that. Thank I, you. I have two more questions for you. Um, one mm-hmm. of them is about the extension um, that this that this book um, anticipates. Uh, let me re- re- rephrase that. Even though your book is um, couched between 1917 and 1939 you you do gesture towards uh understanding um uh black radicalism um and so forth within a new framework sort latter periods i'm thinking and particularly about your epilogue in which you mention <clears throat> um some some other uh historical figures um black radicals and uh and, in some ways, arguing for a way of of understanding them or understanding the political um, um, framework a little differently. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um well what I'm trying to suggest in the uh the epilogue is that, and this is um something that you have um discussions around this question in a lot of fields outside of history. Um, I was just at the Friedman Philosophical Association meeting in Trinidad, and they, um, a lot of people there were addressing the same kinds of questions that I'm raising in the epilogue. But this has to do with taking seriously what these black radicals that we're talking about and that we often invoke are draw on, taking seriously what they were doing and saying as uh, kind of, Political theoretical work, philosophical work, that they are actually trying to map an understanding of the world and of their particular context, be it the Caribbean, the US, uh, Africa, the the European metropole, that they are, on the one hand, engaging Western radical ideas, um, Marxism, socialism, existentialism. Hegelian dialectics, a number of different um, kind of received radical um, approaches to understanding life being political structures, things of this nature. But they're reshaping it and they're breaking from it precisely around these issues of race, around these issues of uh, imperialism and what we might more broadly call coloniality, the the structures, of difference between Europe and the other. Um, and that can involve both colonialism, uh, racial oppression, gender oppression, a, a number of different things. Um, and so that's where someone like Aimee Seizer and his discourse on colonialism, um, where he talks about. Um, the, the proletariat in a way that um, really extends beyond just European workers or white workers. And he is really bringing in um, oppressed peoples, Africans, Caribbeans, under colonialism, um, people who are suffering under racial oppression as those who will kind of move history forward, who will be the agents of this world historical change that will restructure the world. Um, you have the same thing kind of going on with Fren- with France Fanon who had kind of more famously said every time you deal it, you- Marxism has to be stretched every time you deal with the colonial situation um, so what they're saying is that while they're finding value in this that there's also a need to move beyond it to extend it and to not see it as something static or received and total and in that sense for me what is at issue is not rehabilitating marxism in some way are doing this to kind of make marxism more appealing but to really draw on what they're doing and extend from that point forward uh and and in ways that we might find innovative and also to think about what ways did they um you know did they miss that they missed out what were some of the problems they encountered um or some of the the um, the things that they suggested that weren't necessarily as um as useful as they might have thought they were. And so in this sense, I'm, I'm drawing on a political theorist by the name of Anthony Bogues who talks about this black heretics, uh, this black heretical tradition um, where they're, they're really breaking out of um, uh, kind of received wisdoms and received bodies of knowledge and producing new knowledge around their critique of Western radical ideas and Western radical thought, um, philosophical, political thought, things of this nature. Um, And so, for me, one of the ways that I'm kind of extending this is to see, and at the end of the the chapter, the last chapter, um, I talk about James's writing of um, the Black Jacobins, and one of the things that he's engaging in is this critique of Caribbean modernity. So, where he comes to London in '32, kind of convinced of Caribbean modernity, and this being uh, key to the Caribbean. Um, being at the forefront and leading the way forward for backward Africa, um, India, which is still kind of caught in caste, um, that the Caribbean is, is where um, we can see a new people developing who aren't burdened by these things and can thus move move um, people forward globally. That he actually comes to critique that that very modernity as and uh, something that prohibits the Caribbean from really realizing its full potential and turning to Africa as the basis of world revolution. And he continued that that kind of line of thinking, this critique of modernity, um, this critique of enlightenment thought, and this trying to envision a new democratic future that is beyond parliamentary democracy or liberal representative democracy, and to envision something where the masses can create and participate in a new kind of democratic structure that um, allows them to have control over their lives and over um, their society and that is where I'm going in terms of one of the threads I'm pulling out of the the book to to move forward and I think that is and so in a very real way, I'm in conversation with a lot of people who are working around questions of coloniality and modernity or decolonial thought who are largely um, political theorists, uh, philosophers working in a philosophical association, um, folks who are working in uh, a number of different uh, fields, um, and one person in particular who's really um, doing some interesting work and in thinking about black cultural politics and how that plays out is a guy at Northwestern by the name of Richard Iton, who has this really great book mm-hmm. that kind of helps shape how we might think of kind of black culture activity outside of the standard norms of acceptability, uh, respectability, and how might, you know, a fantastic, the fantastical, how that can be a basis of political future. And so that's, I guess that's where my, Intellectual trajectory is going in terms of this next project, which is looking at James in the Caribbean. when He he, he leaves the Caribbean in 32 and he doesn't come back until 1958 um, with independence kind of on the horizon. And he ends up um, being in this uh, very heated conflict with Eric Williams, um, the first premier of, of Trinidad and Tobago, who was, oddly enough, his student. Um, in Trinidad in the 1930s and who he mentored in in England in the 1930s and the 1920s and he mentored in England in the 1930s Um, he is in this really heated conflict and um, ultimately suggests that in not so subtle terms that Williams is headed toward being a dictator and um, could potentially plunge uh, the Caribbean into fascism and all of this is a part of his effort to try and realize a different, a different kind of democratic future, um, both for the Caribbean and for um, the world more
2: generally. Well, you answered both questions in one, and I didn't even ask the last one, which was, okay. <laughs> which is, what are you working on now? And and you just told us.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, and actually I actually have two. That's the one that um, uh, is... Picking up the most speed, um, and it's a it's an issue of language. I'm, I'm also I've also started a, uh, another book project, which is looking at anglophone and African American interactions with Afro Dominicans in the Dominican Republic during the second U.S. occupation in 1965. Um, but because my Spanish ebbs and flows, and it's been in a really ebb period right now. Um, I, it, it's taken me a little bit longer to to do the kind of primary research. So um, this one, since everything is is in English, I can kind of move forward with that more rapidly, and um, hopefully, in the process, um, get the work done to write the second book shortly after uh, the third book, rather shortly after the second one.
2: Nice. Thank you so much, Minka, for joining us on new books in African American studies. Thank
1: you, Prashant, for having me. I've enjoyed my discussion with Minka Makalani about his new book, In the Cause of Freedom, Radical Black Internationalism from Harlem to London, 1917 to 1939, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2011. As you can see from this lively interchange with Minka, there is much to mine in this wonderful intellectual history. I don't think that we can even know enough about of black radical organizations at the turn of the 20th century and the international efforts that these groups uh, sought to forge, as well as what it meant to have a relationship with the Communist Party and to try to bring race as a focal point uh, to the party's efforts to um, deal with class oppression around the globe. These and other topics are explored at length In this wonderful intellectual history. Please pick up your copy today.